Yeah, we don't want to do anything to scare your children. That's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to scare anybody. Hey everyone, welcome back to Leftover. I'm Arjun. I'm Nikita. And this week is a very special episode, uh, an oft-requested uh, topic, maybe by myself more than anyone else, but I'm sure a lot of people that have been talking about this, at least in, in the recent months, if not years, and, and, a, and a very special guest to discuss it with us. But of course, the topic at hand is the music journalism to centrist melt slash fash pipeline. If it is a thing which spoilers it is uh, why it's a thing and you know other discussions around the topic you know around this intersection of culture and politics uh, and who better to discuss this with us than uh someone who has had many years of experience in not just journalism but, sp- but specifically in music journalism uh writer and, and journalist mick wright uh do you want to yeah say a few words about yourself and yeah obviously a huge thanks for joining hi yeah hi, hi nikita yeah I, i'm glad to be here fan of the pod since episode one so um <laughs> first time appear a long time listener or whatever they say on radio stations <laughs> thank you thank you very much yeah great to have you on i was a music journalist for quite a short amount of time but i was a music magazine obsessive from i don't know about the age of 11 onwards in 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 what was the kind of um cursed era of the Britpop age um <laughs> when magazines like enemy and, and melody maker and select Q. and all, and q and others q where which i went on to work for eventually um were in their pomp uh, or kind of their second or third pomp i guess they had the 70s and 80s they had both had kind of they all had big periods in and then the 90s was kind of their last big era uh and i joined q um it was my third professional job in 2009 in the absolute ass and like fag and awful shithole era of the music <laughs> press and i would, the line i always say to people is like what i realized within a few months of starting at q is that i had wanted to be a music journalist in i don't know 1976 uh rather than <laughs> yeah. uh you know 2009 and the first day i was in the office uh it was made very clear to me that i age what 23 a youngest section editor they'd ever had on the magazine was very much not welcome. There was someone at NME they had wanted to get hired for the job who hadn't been hired. And uh, both the other section editors would have been quite happy if I'd have um, fallen in a ditch and died. So the nine months <laughs> I spent there, it did get better, but it was a really odd and weird experience. Out of curiosity, what, what happened to the other guy? Well, he eventually did join Q after I left, but Okay. I just interviewed better. <laughs> <laughs> Bust it. Well, because what it was is I really, really wanted to be a music journalist. And there's this thing in magazines, I mean, not to 
teach people how to suck eggs but like there's this thing like called a flat plan obviously like you know where you you have little squares for each page in your section and you you outline what you would put in those and I came in with like a fully drawn out flat plan for how I would do my first section if they hired me and a load of features ideas and stuff and music journalism at the point particularly in these monthly magazines was pretty moribund you know you got people who've been working on other titles for a long time had been an enemy previously or or Kerrang or whatever. So this is quite a moribund title. And I came in going like, I want to do all these things, you know? So that appealed to the editor and the publisher at the time. But of course, what they hadn't sort of thought about was, yeah, okay, but what happens when you put like this, like poppy dog 23 year old in a room with a bunch of really jaded people? It doesn't work that well. <laughs> uh, and it was also an era where, uh, Paul Reese, the editor at the time, was obsessed with putting acts on the cover that nobody gave a shit about anymore. So you two kept being put on the cover, or wow. like they, or the the, the worst selling um, Q cover of all time was Johnny Burrell from Razorlight. Oh my stood god! In a rain shower, which cost like thirty grand or something. The photo, <laughs> the photo shoot for it, and this was one of the few times when all three of the section editors, and actually over time they did. They, but I, I wouldn't want to make out like I was bullied when I was at Q. Like, I, over time, they started to be a bit nicer to me and whatever. It's okay, Mick. You can admit it. This is a safe space. No, but what I mean is, over t- over those nine months, it, over those nine months, it improved. But by by the end of the nine months, I was really depressed and wanted to leave, so I did. But um, sure. we sat there and we were told, "Oh, Johnny Burrell's going to be the cover star," and we all went, "This is really stupid. It's not. No one's going to buy it. No one gives a shit like about." the people who like Razorlight aren't going to buy this and and most people don't like Razorlight you know they're not like a band that has fervent fans and anyway three months later when the figures uh, were looked at the editor turned around and said to the three of us how could you have let me do this and we were just like (laughs) and so that's like a good example of how it was you know and and it was just very challenging because it was just an era where the magazine was being run for at the whims of executives and a kind of an editor who didn't really know what he wanted. And I have to say, actually, in the final few years of Q, when Ted Kessler, who was a guy who was a features editor when I was there, he became editor. He turned it around, but it wasn't done quick enough. He like started featuring more women on the cover, putting more black music in, putting more hip hop in, make like covering actually interesting music and giving it room to breathe. But, you know, after a decade of, Q being a joke for always having numbered lists of the top thousand albums or whatever it kind of was too late you know and Q was born in the 80s to basically appeal to a certain type of guy you know how we're always talking on Twitter about like uh, there's new type of guy well the new type of guy in the 80s was the CD guy and Q yeah. arrived <laughs> for the time when the CD guy was buying all the records he'd previously had, but getting them on CD. And it arrived pretty much just in time for, you know, Dire Straits coming out on CD. That person is now investing really heavily in Dogecoin. <laughs> so yeah, that person is. But the other thing about, about Q that was quite interesting in the early years is it had some kind of fairly wild writers too there was a guy called tom hibbert who had been on smash hits and he created this thing called who the hell which was this interview which was quite sort of unusual at the time because basically it just ripped the piss out of whoever it was interviewing 
And it became notorious because what Q had to do was find ways to get big stars to do that feature without them knowing that they were going to end up being in that feature. My God. Both and when I style. started, they had brought it back, but Tom Hibbert was dead. And Tom Hibbert was a genius, like a hilarious genius at Smash Hits who created all kinds of amazing music journalism. But he was dead, right? So they go, we're just going to bring this feature back. It'll be brilliant. And you sort of go, my God, the nostalgiarism of the music press has reached such a level that we're bringing back old features, even though the person that made that feature unique and made it brilliant he cannot write it because he's dead. So we're going to make this sort of hollow, you know, facsimile of it. Anyway, I could go down that route for a long time, but that's that's yeah. the story. <laughs> of it. You know, I think that that covers quite a few things that are going to come up later on in the discussion as well. And I'm particularly, I think, interested as well in, in this question of like nostalgia and, and the role that that plays in, in pop culture, but also in this intersection between pop culture and politics, specifically sort of 90s nostalgia um, and sort of definitions uh, around cool and hip. Oh, are we doing uh, hauntology volume two? Well, uh, I, I mean, I think by by proxy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, the thing is, like, while doing the research, like a lot of the things that we're going to discuss today have come up previously in uh, in previous episodes, but in sort of disparate contexts. You know, when it comes to the, this particular topic, I think, I mean, the reason why it's been on everyone's minds uh, recently is because, you know, of, of a spate of a rather rogues gallery of various people in the media world, uh, you know, who have either started in music journalism or, or are still working in music journalism now and their forays into politics. And, you know, uh, a lot of them specifically in, in sort of how they lost their minds over the Corbyn period, specifically, there seems to be a bit of a common thread you know like a lot of them worked for example at nme the enemy and the melody maker you see and the melody maker sure <laughs> and it's very important because 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 actually the melody maker people are often much much worse yes <laughs> and i think there's two interesting things with this one is these people still define themselves as maker people or enemy people like i know quite a lot of them you know uh, tangentially and that a lot of them are like, they still define themselves like that. And there's still weird rivalries between them from when they were in their early 20s and even teens. And the other thing is, I think it's a little bit like the reason they've come out into British politics is it's sort of like, you know, in Ghostbusters where they get all the ghosts into the containment zone and then it breaks and all the ghosts <laughs> escape again. Well, the music press was like a containment zone for some of the worst galaxy brains in British <laughs> comment. And what happened is in the late 90s, early noughties, is the Melody Maker and an enemy, well, Melody Maker shuts down and is folded into enemy. And enemy starts sort of doing what Radio 1 used to do and starts kicking out the oldsters again, right? And they have to go somewhere. So where do they go? They go to the Modern Review which, you know, is a Toby Young magazine. They go to The Guardian, they go to The Independent, and, and then we get stuck with them because British comment journalism is like an ossery, you know? Like, once they're in there, the bones <laughs> never leave. I think we were on a panel together on a uh, friend of the show, Sinan's uh, Twitch stream, talking specifically about why, you know, British journalism is, is as bad as it is, weren't we, Mick? Yes, it were. indeed we were. And, uh, and um, yeah, and, and I think that, yeah, that there are quite a few reasons for that, you know, uh, specifically as well in, in, in more recent years, I think the, the way that digital has changed the landscape as well, um, 
in terms of business models and in terms of like the, the kinds of people that actually end up in these um in these positions the amount of sort of nepotism and corruption that that, that exists and something that that was quite striking um you know when, when doing this research especially like looking at some of the older uh members of you know this let's say yeah this 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 lineup of 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 journalists um is how working class you know a lot of their backgrounds are uh so for example julie birchall who i think is uh you know you know one of the most controversial to put it mildly one of the most inflammatory and yeah i would just say psychotic individuals um allegedly uh does she no she doesn't she doesn't sue people she gets sued that's that's the thing right uh so <laughs> she doesn't have she doesn't have money to hire a lawyer anymore i can i can just say that she's a psycho be, that would be defensible under the under matter of opinion <laughs> and all of her actions over the last few years plenty of evidence to back it up as well <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> that's the thing it's not exactly out of my ass and and yeah, I mean, she started at, at, at the enemy at, at age 17 in 1976, like you mentioned. You know, I think you would have, uh, apparently you would have loved to be Julie Birchall's contemporary at uh, at the enemy. Uh. Well, it's not that I wanted to be Julie Birchall's contemporary, but like no, 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 more so, more, yeah, but more so people like John mm-hmm. Savage or, or Charles Sean Murray or that, that, you know, there were a lot of interesting people writing then and also you were able that was an era when people were allowed to write in quite wild ways and, you know, across tons of pages and to write about things. It was less of PR driven era, really. This is something I want to sort of come back to as well later, um, talking about how, you know, especially um, in more recent years, how the role of the music press has changed as well with, you know, the advent of streaming and, you know, like, you know, what is the point of a music review, review these days? You know, like uh, everyone can just listen to music at any time anyway. You know, they, they don't really need to listen to a, like read a review before buying an album. The review is dead, but the profile is still alive. And, and the profile, exactly. And so the profile becomes part of this PR marketing machine, you know, and it becomes part of, you know, album tours and and, and, and whatever, you know, promotion tours. And, and it becomes, you know, like there, there's a huge amount of like, you know, this client journalism, basically, you know, when it comes to any sort of entertainment press. Um, but, you know... Um, we are definitely going to come back to, to to all of that, but I think you know specifically, you know, when we talk about Julie Birchall, I mean, th- I mean, this is just a person that, yeah, like you were saying earlier, I think you know, you could you could probably dedicate an entire mini series to her life's work, <laughs> if that's what you want to call it. I mean, <laughs> what's fascinating about her is she couldn't and wouldn't exist now if you think about her background. Yeah, how does she end up at the enemy? She ends up at the enemy because there's literally a job ad. Uh, hip young gunslingers. A, a, a classified ad put says, "Yeah, and I got it in front of me now." It says, "Attention, hip young gunslingers. The enemy has a vacancy for a staff writer. Previous experience in journalism or the music business is not essential, but a good knowledge of rock and enthusiasm are, together with the ability to write lively and incisive prose." And she and Tony Parsons were hired on the back of that ad, and they were assholes from straight from the beginning. They <laughs> operated out of a cubicle type setup that they put in the middle of the office that they called the kinder bunker and made it very difficult for other people to walk through that area <laughs> but what i will say about Birchard when she wrote in the music press early on is she wrote preternaturally mad prose you know yeah. that, that people the reason that she became a star was because she knew how to write in this way that was very at that time incendiary about things that didn't matter 
like bands. Of course, bands matter completely. To me as a teenager, sure. bands were everything, you know. And if you read the enemy letters pages from that period, you know, people it, it was like flame wars on, on social media now, you know, <laughs> the, the, the level of like vitriol and battles and stuff that goes on there. And you, and you look at kind of Stan culture now, and it was there then. It just was, you know, a bit more um, pony and trap and took a lot more time to get there, but it was there. Yeah. So, you know, she had to have something to start with, and she did. Um, and it's just how fame took an already deeply insecure and odd person you know she still speaks with the voice of a child which is very yeah. interesting. And, and she's very conscious uh, about yeah. that i was like listening to this interview where she's talking yeah. about how she plays up to it yeah because her real voice oh, really? is deeper than that wait she does this on purpose i mean she has got quite a high voice she has a character why? Yeah. Because she wants to shock people. She she says she knows that the voice is going to shock people because it doesn't match up to her writing, you know, which is just just full of hate and vitriol. It's also a kind of defensive measure, yeah. Okay, okay. I can't help it. I've always distrusted people who change their accents. Um, Janet Street Porter once said to change your accent was like putting um, a crocheted shepherdess on a toilet roll. <laughs> and I totally believe that. And also, I, I have to be honest, I really like my voice. I know it's cute and I do play up to it. How would you expect me to speak when you read my writing? Oh, you know, firm and authoritative. I like being a, um, I like being a paradox. And I know that people are shocked by my voice. And I guess if I tried to, I could, I could have taken elocution lessons or deepened it. But why bother? Because I do like being the way I, I am. She's almost like a sort of proto-Cartman, you know, like proto, like South Park level of kind of like 4chan edgelord type of type of humour about her. You know, like she's just like got this yeah. desire to offend. Yeah, she was into triggering people before it was a term. You know, she has yeah. a natural affinity to that. There's this one quote of hers from this uh, article that she wrote in 1995 for the Sunday Times. Was it you that wrote uh, in your piece about Birchill that in 1995, that's when she fell out with everyone? <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, 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 very yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, the pro yeah, yeah, she fell out with literally everyone. Because <laughs> yeah. after starting at, at the NME, she, she wrote for The Face and then The Sunday Times, but then she wrote for like just about every single, you know, newspaper on Fleet Street as well. Yeah, well, she went on to co-found the modern review with her second husband Consmo Landsman right. and yeah. and Toby Young and she later left Landsman for his sister and all sorts of stuff there's all sorts of crazy no, stuff no left went. left Cosmo Landsman for Charlotte Raven and then married Charlotte Raven yeah and then left Charlotte Raven brother. for for her brother <laughs> exactly that was it yeah <laughs> exactly and apparently Toby Young was also after Charlotte Oh Raven, my God. Which is why it was like a big Can you deal. imagine those fucking yeah. office parties? Jesus Christ. And somehow Will, Will Self was also involved Will with Self? Because Toby Young had like a thing. He was either with Will Self's ex or kept trying to have sex with his exes. <laughs> yeah. There's a very, I'll put it in the show notes. There's a very confusing article about it. Will Self is a man who went around his ex-wife's house as she was suffering from terminal cancer, putting red dots on items in the house that belong to him oh my god oh my god he's a very special man oh my himself. god jesus christ but yeah this column that Virgil wrote for the times in 1995 wrote i'm a bitch and i'm proud and she argued that women should reclaim the word bitch used as a slur she wrote that it is the nature of, of these things that in recent years 
the slighted have taken steps in to, to, to repossess the slight. Thus, we have, and you know exactly what's coming, we have blacks who call each other the N-word, except she doesn't write the N-word. Oh, Julie. <laughs> Pansies who call each other queer and upper-class cretins who quite happily call each other Henry. I mean, I suppose it is kind of funny. In you like, know, one of you know, those things is not like yeah, the Yeah, one of those things is definitely not like the others. This is a woman who's taken so much cocaine in her life. I mean, uh, and she she uh, at one point libeled George Galloway twice for the same thing for two different newspapers in the same year. <laughs> because she was taking so much drugs she uh she she accused she accused george galloway of of stealing a pair of knickers from his ex-girlfriend's washing line but it was actually another labor mp ron smith who did it and 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 then uh like she wrote this for the guardian like the guardian got got sued and then uh like a few months later she wrote the same fucking thing for the times and the times got sued as well I I've read something where she was saying that she like she would for her Times articles in particular she just wouldn't bother with them she'll just write it out and send it she just didn't care. She lasted a year at the Times, right? And but they wanted to get rid of her, but they were obliged to pay her for the remainder of her three year contract. So she got three hundred grand without needing to file any copy. Just incredible. Yeah, the quote Nikita is referring to is, um, she said, uh, she later described her Times columns as taking the piss. I didn't spend much time on them and they were such arrant crap. And she still is employed by the <laughs> that media. Was arrant crap. And this is a woman who is now back with a regular column in the Telegraph, which shows you what level of quality the Daily Telegraph has reached now. Wait, she didn't lose the column after the thing that happened with Ash? Nope. Oh my God. She's in there. She was in there today. It's the Telegraph. And that's what she was in, in the news for most recently, um, I suppose, was the her massive L in having to pay huge damages to Ash uh, Sarkar of uh, Navarra Media after going on a late night rant. Uh, this was probably around Christmas, wasn't it, as well? Uh, like after going on this late night rant, uh... it was just yeah, it was December because because my I wrote about it the day after and it was so that must have been yeah December thirteenth yeah that's it that's it and uh, yeah like accusing her of supporting pedophilia and uh, and Islamic extremism because surprise surprise Ash had dunked on Rod Little for an article he wrote many many years ago about how he wouldn't want to be a teacher because he couldn't trust himself not to shag his students. And uh, Ash said that, you know, I mean, if, if I were a teacher, I probably wouldn't just wouldn't shag my students. Uh, and uh, that, that's what provoked this rant. Uh, and in the end, she lost a massive court case and had to pay a huge amount of damages and had to write an absolutely infamous apology tweet. It's worth saying she's got a big form for the, the Islamophobia. She had big form for as well. Big form for years and years of it before this and it's part of like the most bizarre philo-semitism that like genuinely that i have possibly ever fucking seen in my life i mean like i've seen her post like these videos on the timeline and of course her her handle is probably the worst handle worse than sarah vine's handle which is westminster wag uh but um yeah booze and fags fags and booze, booze and fags yeah uh genuinely yeah. is like the the worst twitter handle of all time yeah but you have to know how edgy she yeah is. exactly like <laughs> imagine that like virtual is has stayed 17 
Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's you. She 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 joined the enemy at seventeen. That's why she keeps that voice exactly. She keeps that voice. That's why. That's why she's she has abandoned every friendship and relationship, um, whether it be with partners or children. She abandons everything because she's still seventeen. She doesn't see the need for it, and she's a seventeen-year-old edge lord. And if she'd come up in the era of. 4chan she'd have never been in a in the in the press because she'd have just stayed on 4chan she yeah she'd be a fucking 4chan poster yeah. but like yeah the, the the infamous apology tweet i mean accompanying the actual full statement is oh this is uh, beautiful on, on 13 december 2020 i made def- uh, defamatory statements about aoc's uh, ash uh, ash sarkar which um I sincerely regret and I retract and I've undertaken not to repeat. I have agreed to pay substantial damages to Ashtaka and her legal costs. Here is my full and wholehearted apology. Please read sweet. <laughs> the best... Does she actually say sorry? No. Nope. <laughs> okay. Here is my apology. The wording of that will have been hammered out over quite a few emails, I suspect, between her lawyers and Ashes. I sincerely regret and retract. Um, I mean, maybe she said sorry in the actual full apology, but I I can't see it. I don't believe the word sorry was was used. I don't believe the word sorry actually. I can't see the word sorry come up in the actual um, uh, in, in the actual full apology. And uh, yeah, and and I mean, like the the whole Islamophobia uh, accompanies, you know, like I was saying, this this some of the strangest fucking philosemitism. Do you know the thing about her and the rabbi in, in, in the, the rabbi in Brighton in 2014? <laughs> right. Yeah, I didn't manage to read through the whole thing. Um, Ellie Tikvar-Sara of, of, of the Brighton and Hope Progressive Synagogue um, sent out an email uh, and, and, and had, had defended Muslims and Palestinians quite, you know, quite vociferously. And Birchall res- wrote in response to a round-robin email from the synagogue just saying, oh, uh, please, you know, help us with our 75th anniversary celebrations if you can, uh, that she wouldn't be involved because your rabbi respects pig Islam. And it was all in, like, capital letters, wasn't it? Yeah, all in capital letters. And she went on to say pigs and apes are what some Muslims call Christians and Jews, by the way, even in school textbooks. Google it. Um, Wow. And then she, then in, in her book, The Unchosen, which is about which is another book about her love affair with Judaism. That's the the memoirs of a philosemite. Yeah, she dedicated twenty three pages to attacking the rabbi. In in a, in a book called Memoirs of a Philosemite, like might I remind you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> twenty three pages attacking a rabbi. <laughs> Just... I, Julie Birchall, love Judaism so much that I must uh, verbally and in print abuse a rabbi. Like, some of the quotes from this book are just actually, like, just reading them, I could feel myself losing brain cells at a rate that I hadn't done since I huffed glue at the age of 15. I might delete that part. I might not. Who knows? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's perfectly fitting for a, a bit about Julie Birchall. Well, the thing is about you with the glue thing, yeah. right, is I've admitted working for Q magazine, and that's much worse. Yeah, yours is hands down worse. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, you didn't quite go down that pipeline. <laughs> no, I never fully inhaled. Whatever, like mouth smoking. I it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I have spent my life, these are quotes from the book, by the way, so I have spent my life wrapping myself in the Jewish flag, 
sometimes metaphorically, sometimes literally. Occasionally, when very drunk, I will literally wrap one around me and cry like a baby. Julie, 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 what's the Jewish flag? <laughs> Julie Birchall, literal flag flagger. <laughs> While crying. I mean, she's talking here about how, like, and this is like genuinely just unbelievable. I... Whenever I look at my Torah, I feel a burning thrill of shame, recalling the night long after I met Carl, when we cut our thumbs, smeared our, our mixed blood on the title page, and he agreed with me, now we're with them, whatever happens. Huh? She, she put her blood on the first page of the Torah to... I feel like you're not meant to do that. I feel like that's bad karma. That feels like desecration of... Like yeah. a sacred text, man. Like that's like, like what the fuck? <laughs> She's talking about how you know. Um, I I remember telling myself, if you really want to marry a Jew, you'll probably will encounter a body hair at some point. You can do it, hun. Just lie back and think of Israel. What? Oh my goodness! When, when <laughs> she <laughs> comparing herself to historic in quotes Jew lovers again. Just, what the fuck? She's saying, when we consider famous Jew lovers, on the other hand, Marilyn, which she means Marilyn Monroe, who is Jewish, <laughs> Ava, Liz, Felicity Kendall, Martha Gellhorn, Martin Luther King, me, what a sumptuous banquet of radiant humanity. What? There's a lot more quotes. There's there's a whole thread uh, of uh, excerpts from this uh, which we will uh, link for anyone who wants to, you know, lose a, a lot of brain cells um, at, at a very rapid rate. Um, but yeah, this this woman is genuinely fucking bonkers. I mean, like this philo-Semitism, I, I don't know, like maybe again, it's like not my place to say this, but it feels extremely fucking anti-Semitic to me, man. Like, I mean, it's like, like, dude, like some of the shit, like, she she had this this uh, interview with the JC back in like two thousand and eight or nine, um yeah it was back in two thousand and eight, and she's saying uh, when I when I see that Jews can do things so well everything across the board from having shops to winning Nobel prizes, <laughs> I think wow how fantastic it must be great to be one of them maybe that's why I've got very <laughs> maybe that's because I've got very high self esteem, and I'm just. Just thinking, like, what the, what the fuck, man? Like, it's just insanely creepy. That's it? just so fucked up. Like, who thinks like this? Seriously, who thinks like this? <laughs> There's a kind of segue here between between someone like Julie and someone like John Harris, mm. which is this, right? So for Julie Birchall, she got like into music journalism because of uh, an affinity to tribes and an affinity to picking sides right and saying this band is good and this band is the worst band ever and if you like this band you are worthy and if you like this band you're a piece of shit right and all she's done is she's replaced band with judaism which yeah is bizarre Fucking <laughs> <laughs> hugely disrespectful hugely anti-semitic right hugely trite and then you look at someone like John Harris, and, and John Harris wrote this book, End of the Party, which is like links together and weaves together the death of Britpop and the decline of New Labour, right? <laughs> Same thing, basically. 
this attitude to things is so trite. And when you look at any of these people, the ex-Melody Maker and enemy people who went on to be political journalists of a form, the way they treat politics is to think of politics as something where, like, uh, you need a good lead singer, right? And as long as the lead <laughs> singer good, looks good, it doesn't really matter what the words say. Yeah. And that's the way they think about politics. When they get so prior you know, priapetic for fucking Keir Starmer. The reason they do that is because they think, well, he kind of looks what I think a, 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 a prime minister looks like in the same way that they'll say, this is what a pop star should look mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. And that's the issue. It's, it's very trite. And it's the same thing you get with someone like Catelyn Moran. Her politics are so surface level. I don't think writing about music is superficial, right? I, if you do it properly. Exactly. Like, there's this crap quote, and I can't remember who said it, but, you know, like, writing about music is like dancing around... Uh, dancing, uh, writing about yeah. music is like dancing about architecture. I think, I, I, I don't yeah. agree with that. I think it might have been Eno. I think it might be Brian Eno or something It's like been that, attributed but... to just about everyone. Like, it's been attributed to Frank Zappa, Elvis Costello, like, loads of people. I've always hated that quote. Because criticism is a valid art yeah. form in itself, right? And yeah. you can write. And I, there, there, there's some, there's some really, really good writers, like music writers. <laughs> there are, there are, and 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 so I don't think that it naturally follows that if you love music and you love writing about music that you'll be trite. But I think the people who were stars. Uh, predominantly stars of the enemy or the melody maker or places like that, they do write about it in a trite way. And 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 John Savage um, had this quote in um, in their own right, which is a kind of oral history in the music press. And he said, "Not having part of the enemy myth making process, I was always suspicious of it at the time. You know, was it such a great thing to be a star music writer so early in your working life? A, a conflation of the idea of being a pop writer with being a pop star with all the attendant problems, burnout, premature fixing of style, pseudo celebrity behavior, which had which have all but submerged many of my um, contemporaries. And the thing that I think is really important in there is premature fixing of style, because you look at Birchill, you look at Catelyn Moran, you look at John Harris, a clear like common denominator between them is. They they're doing the same shit they did in the enemy and the melody maker, but applying it to politics. They've never, you know, evolved their style. Yeah. They've never become more complex. And there are many music yeah. writers from that era. Uh, John Savage is one of them. Uh, there are others. Um, Ian Penman, even though he's got many issues, who have written much more complex, interesting things. But they haven't been big comment writers because what comment writing requires in the british press at least is a incredible reductiveness right which worked nicely for these music writers because they were from a world where you go something no stars or five stars you know and, and a sort of reflexive you know inclination to towards bootlicking you know like as long as your sort of instinct is towards maintaining the status quo no matter what sort of whatever kind of hand gestures you make you know like at the end of the day if your politics are very much about that which, as we saw with so many of these people, they completely fucking lost their minds when an option for an actual genuine alternative came about in the form of Corbyn's Labour. Then you're fine, you know. You're, you're still going to be you're still going to be hired by the establishment, and especially as a comment writer, you know, like that's and that that's why Britain's you know comment journalism in particular is so fucking cursed. They came of age in easy mode, you know. Like when we we're talking earlier, and I said I wished I'd been a music journalist in 1976. What I'm sort of saying is I wish I'd been a journalist when. It was really easy. 
this is what I was saying as well about like the the, the working class uh, uh, backgrounds of a lot of these people as well. You know, like the fact that a lot of these people would not have even had these opportunities to kind of be these, you know, star journalists or whatever in this day and age, you know, from, from those same backgrounds. It's interesting with the working class thing because you look at someone like uh, John Harris is the, is the kid of lecturers. Right, yeah, uh, As sure. is Catelyn Moran. And Catelyn Moran's parents... She, there is a myth around her childhood, which she recycles oh, really? in almost every column. And the myth being, yes, she lived that life, right? But it was a life of, they, you know, there's a kind of a slur on working class people of people who choose not to work or choose to have a certain number of kids. Yeah. Well, in the case there, that is what happened. There was, you know, her father was a musician and, and had been a lecturer and she, and and made some choices about uh, choices not to work, you know, and not to do certain things, which is, of course, valid. But the notion that the lifestyle that her family had was a sort of forced one, you know, is kind of slightly untrue. She had a bohemian upbringing, sure. right, which is perfectly valid. Sure. I know people like that. <laughs> but to suggest your bohemian upbringing where you had very little because there was a kind of laissez-faire attitude yeah. in the family compared to like my, my dad was like one of five and grew and grew up on a council estate with, with his single mother and and had to leave age 16 because Taunton had nothing going for him you know so sure. he went in the navy because it was the only option right sure. like so my my mom was working class my dad was working class but i'm solidly middle class because i grew up middle class yeah. right but these people like like to kind of not only over enhance their. They see cl- class is like a transferable, uh, you know, it, uh, like a heritable yeah, trait. You know, like you know, like my my grandfather used to work in a coal mine, so like you know, <laughs> therefore that means I'm. They won't class. admit <laughs> now that they're columnists on six figure salaries, and that maybe like how Alan Sugar is still working class Britain. somehow. Like uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and it's like, but someone in their twenties now who has a degree but has to deliver for delivery and you know, or rely on other precarious work and lives in a shit flat, isn't allowed to be working class in their conception of it. You know, they can't admit that they came up in an easier era. You know, you could come to London in the era of the enemy when these writers come and and easily survive on the pretty low wages you were paid at like an enemy or on a melody maker. That's not possible now, but they like to pretend it is because if they admitted that they that some of the yeah. stuff they didn't come up as hard scrabble as they think, then half their columns would be even more ludicrous than they are. Yeah, I'm really struck by when um, Kat Lemoran came, like waded into the kind of feminists have a cleaner uh, sort of discourse that was going on by being like, you know, I have a cleaner, and it's actually misogynistic to ask the question whether women can have cleaners or not, blah blah blah. And she mentioned that she had, you know, done some cleaning work when she was 15, therefore she had the authority to talk about it. I was doing cleaning work during lockdown in the first one because I had absolutely no money. And um, yeah, just sort of like reading through this article that she'd written and there's like absolutely no analysis of the power relation between the feminist who hires the cleaner and the cleaner. There's like none of that. You know, she's talking about how her, you know, she has cleaners who love coming to her house because it means they escape yeah. domestic violence. Yeah. And it's like, well, what about the violence that employers can enact on employees? There's no analysis of that. 
And I'm just like fucking reading this or like, and it came out while I was doing cleaning work last year. And I was just like, fuck you. Like, what the fuck is this? It's so, so bad. I mean, she is like one of the sort of uh, figureheads of, uh, of sort of liberal cultural feminism as well, isn't she? I mean, she was one of the people loudly calling for water cannons or the army to be brought out during the 2011 riots oh yeah and um she wanted to have a curfew for men a curfew a curfew for men exactly when the when uh sarah everard case happened and um yeah and, and, and all the protests were happening and yeah like i mean she's just a sort of gold mine of cringe i haven't got exact quotes in front of me but it, she said this a variance of this many times in interviews is she will say things like before how to be a woman um people weren't talking about and then list any number of elements of of of, of discourse and you sort of go well you know you know how we talk about the many waves of feminism like they were a thing before you like and people weren't not talking about this it's just that you weren't listening to them that's not a diff- you know and <laughs> but it's this framing of her uh, and the thing is like whatever fair enough it seems like that book has had in some ways, a positive effect on some people in the sense that it's been a gateway drug to them getting to other stuff. And I guess that's good in a sense. But she has that thing of that John Savage thing of having been a pop writer and now she has become a pop star because at the times she pretty much uh, can do what she likes and he's paid huge amounts for doing it. And he's a star and seen as a driver of subscriptions and stuff. And an interesting thing I've always thought is lesser columnists have to turn up on the execrable Times radio. But Catelyn Moran never has. If Catelyn Moran is a true star of the Times, she doesn't have to deal with that publicizing the paper <laughs> shit. I think the overall through line for it is that these were the glibest of the music writers. And because they didn't actually care that much about music, they were able to transfer their glib tactics there once the music press contracted and they were kind of aging out of it. They took that glibness and applied it to British comment journalism. And that glibness has affected and radiated out more broadly into British commentary so that we have the Ed Miliband bacon sandwich thing. We have the Corbyn's hat thing. All of this stuff is signs and signifiers stuff that they were obsessed with when they were in music journalism, you know? Like, is this band cool because it wears the right shoes or not? And they've applied that to politics. Policies don't matter to them as much as the tone in which you say your policies. And it's, you know, you could see that in the way that they decided what bands were or weren't cool. These guys all come from an era, men and women, all come from an era where it was very important to create your own scenes, you know, and go, these bands are a scene, you know. This is this is very much it, you know, and like this kind of, I think, comes to a, a sort of, I think, discomfort that I feel like I've always had with um, a lot of like popular, you know, or like mainstream hip pop culture writing, you know, which is this kind of overuse of, well, you know, obscure references uh along with you know just like a lot of uh you know like like they've just got a thesaurus open in front of them and just like lots of words that you know just never heard before and like you know when you're reading a music review for example like you'll actually 
it'll take about like the fourth or fifth paragraph before you have any idea of what the music sounds like you know uh and you know like i mean yeah. i was just like just going through the quietus just like just going through random reviews like recently and it's just like I just can't read that shit, man. Like Pitchfork, and it's just like I can't read that stuff. Like for the most part. Sorry, Sarah. I know, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but I uh, know Sarah's writing. Like there are exceptions. Sarah's writing is very good. There are people who have written for for music um, uh, magazines. As as, as yes, we, I've written uh, for the quietest now and then. <laughs> <we> um, <laughs> but like, I mean, just 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 like so, you know. And and I feel like a lot of this discomfort that I've had is like. You know, a lot of it is just kind of like rung a bit hollow to me. And it just feels like you were saying before, you know, just just quite superficial. And it's it's uh, journalism like this, you know, and like later on, something like Vice kind of, you know, especially as we entered this, the 2010s, and we had this kind of confluence of like music, fashion, and internet and memes and all of this kind of like kind of all started converging into one thing. And so it it becomes even harder at that point to have something that's like just specifically even music journalism, you know? Another thing like which brings up from what you were just saying there is like a lot of music journalism is about in crowd, out crowd. Yeah, right? exactly. It's about sort of saying, I am part of this in crowd. I, I understand these references. I understand this this milieu and I'm close to the players within it. And I have to admit, like one of the things that that like I'm still a, a music obsessive, like sure. I but I I'm still really interested in hearing new things, right? And what I always thought was interesting about a lot of music journalists uh, or how they can become is they just become like they want to hear more of what they already heard. And they also become quite defined by their access to people and closeness to people. Yeah. And then if you look at what happens when they move to being political journalists or, or, or political commentators, the same thing applies. It's like, look how close. So like in the Blair era, they were obsessed with how close they were. And they want to hear the same tunes, like they want to hear the same, the, those same, uh, you know, catchphrases in the in the in the in, in the speeches. And this is why, you know, like I said before as well, when they hear like yeah, when they hear Rishi, when they hear when they hear Rishi Sunak speak, for example, all of these people are like, you know, not fa- not a fan of conservatives, but this is class, <laughs> you know, like all these, like it activates something in their fucking brains, you know, because like like you were saying, it's like it's the same shit as like with the liberals, you know, about uh, how they don't they're, they're like dogs that they don't respond to content. They're respond to tone um yeah. remember these are people people of the john harris school are people who thought cooler shaker were good right the john harris school i can't believe we just said the john harris school <laughs> the john harris school of journalism the john harris school of cool but what was Britpop, right what was Britpop? but an echo of the 60s but also the 70s right one of the big mistakes people make when they talk about oasis is they always go oasis ripped off the beatles but they didn't rip off the beatles they ripped off slade which is even less cool right <laughs> although i fucking love slade but that's by the by the point is Britpop was just a rip off of something right and what they want when they look at keir starmer they see he's the Britpop of blair right if blair is like the 60s right and blair was trying to rip off mick jagger but do mick jagger if he was a prime minister then keir starmer is trying to do um the revivalist version of of tony blair what is keir starmer if not the Britpop of blair oh my god that's basically what he is yeah, he's the same. He's the same. He's like he's the same song done half as well with you know with even less originality. 
What is, what is Keir Starmer if not Jangle Pop persevering? The thing about when you look at Blair, right? Because I was I, so research for something recently. I was watching um, I was watching stuff from ninety three, ninety four, ninety five, like the, the days when like Blair was just first coming up in the Labour Party to pro, you know, to real prominence. And you compare him to other politicians at that time, and he appeared new and different right now we know we've uh, capable we have the hindsight we can see what he really was but i can understand why people at the time saw this sounded like a new tune but how dumb do you have to be to look at keir starmer a guy who you know if he's a musician he can't tune his guitar you know <laughs> he's, he's playing he's like playing bad oasis covers in a, in the back room of a pub and you've got people no like one's every listening. british columnist is like, like literally no one's yeah, listening yeah and every to him. british columnist is like <laughs> some like tin pot alan mcgee going i've seen the future and it's like you haven't <laughs> man you're just hearing a bad cover version it's like there's like some mad sort of like emperor's new clothes stuff going on because like i would have thought that by now you know after the the disastrous showing at the at the local elections and well m- like maybe after batley and spend like if they lose that which it looks like they very well might at this rate you know given like the kind of shit I think that they're, they might. <laughs> given what they're pulling there at the moment uh but if they if they lose that like maybe he will go but who fucking knows like it's just bizarre like there's there's like a, a question of sunk costs like all these people have like dedicated so much into him and into the purging of the left from the party and uh, you know like and, and there's a complete dearth of talent like who the fuck else are they going to bring in do you know what i mean like they're all fucking hopeless yeah they're all terrible and like i'm going to say something that really upsets will really upset people who love glass right? <laughs> one of the things you've got to look at with all these colonists whether it's catlin but particularly someone like catlin moran right she's obsessed with glass of course <laughs> obsessed with it right she's a woman with with teenage children in in her you know late 40s and it's like i'm i'm 37 and i think i'm a bit old for glass from you know my legs don't <laughs> want it anymore and then i think to myself it's always really interesting to me that you, one of the things that really fucked youth culture almost globally is the unwillingness of generation x to fucking get off the stage and my and the older millennials like me Generation X was a mistake, man. <laughs> when you look at these music journalists as well, it's like there was a really good thing that Alice Glass of Crystal Castle said, I think back in like a bit like twenty ten maybe or twenty fifteen. She was like voted the coolest person on the enemy cool list or whatever. And she just went, like, when are we gonna get rid of these beatnik words? Like this is as cool as a word from the fifties, right? And it's sort of meaningless. This is a meaningless marketing buzzword. But you look at people like like Catlin Rands of the world, and they will never admit that they're not cool anymore, right? They refuse to get off the stage. It's the same problem with 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 columnists, right? How many columnists of um, national prominence are under forty, right? Owen Jones, basically, right? And and uh, Ash, maybe a couple. Uh, Ash, yeah, but but Ash is, Ash had to build her own thing, right? Um, how many people fucked off out of like I've always said that newspapers if they actually wanted to sell copies would have uh, like a term limit on columnists right (laughs) move them over to do features or something else like get younger people in to write these columns if you actually want your papers to represent what the world is like but they won't do that because these people won't get off the stage or progress 
You know, it used to be in the past, people would reach a certain age and go, okay, well, I'm at a different stage of life. But they want to keep saying, I love Glastonbury and I'm really cool and I have cool shoes or whatever. And you're like, you're not cool. I'm like, there was a big thing this week about how, um, you know, Fugi or whatever and how people on TikTok were taking the piss out of millennials. And I'm like, fantastic. We aren't cool <laughs> anymore if we ever were, right? That's great. Like that's the natural. Oh, you're order one of, of the geriatric millennials, didn't you? See that one as well. Like there was another. Yeah, no, I am. I, but I don't. I'm so comfortable with that, though. I'm so comfortable with that. As you like, should be. It's fine. <laughs> I'm saying that, like, um, yeah, but it's fine. The Telegraph, like, doing this thing where there's always like two articles from the Telegraph trending on Twitter, and it's always something to do with millennials. And I'm. They pay Twitter a load of money as well to do that. It's really expensive as well. But 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 what I'm wondering is like surely other outlets also have the means to do that. Yeah, they're not as desperate as the Telegraph. <laughs> like this is what I'm wondering. Like, I mean, and, and are they hoping for the rate? The Telegraph clicks, is a ghost ship. Are they are they, are they are they hoping for you know like or like people like us to do sort of uh, kind of smart smarmy sort of sarky left commentary on algorithms and shit. Yeah, partly. Like, I mean, I, I don't really understand, like, who is that stuff really for? <laughs> like, who actually reads that? That's the thing as well. So uh, when you look at um, Birchall's writing, it appeals to, to people of a very specific age. I think, like, when I read the way she writes, it doesn't appeal to me, but I can see maybe someone of, like, her age, like, getting on with that kind of, like, polemic style. Yeah, it's a shtick. And in the same way that Marina Hyde delivers a shtick. The Telegraph don't want people my age to read it, but they want my age to be mad at it. Yeah, yeah. You say, like, I've heard from, from people within the Times that there are executives at the Times who have meetings and they go, well, how can we get more young people to read this? And I say back to them, well, stop telling young people they're stupid and the things that they believe in are shit. And that might make a difference. You know, if you let, if you actually had any kind of diversity of, of um, age and gender and sexuality and race and uh, in at the paper it might make a difference but you don't so of course your paper is going to increasingly look pathetic but music journalists i think they can't they most music journalists struggle to accept that they're no longer cool yeah and that's a big issue here they still think they're rebels and they're not they're the establishment like the times probably still actually think that catlin moran is hip yeah, 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 exactly. And she's still got that, you know, that one lock of like grey hair and that's like her look and whatever, you know. When you look at, for example, like Dorian Linsky, he wrote a book about protest music from Billie Holiday to Green Day. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> uh, I know, I know. Uh, um, 33 revolutions per minute. Um, uh, he's also uh, now the host of the the hands down the boldest podcast in the country, uh, the Romaniacs, which uh, surprise surprise didn't manage to stop Brexit. Um, hosted with another extremely politically bald man, Ian Dunt, um, politically and and physically very bald. Both of these people. <laughs> that is also a product of another former music journalist, um, Andrew Harrison, the last editor of Select. Right. <laughs> It's nineties music press all the, all way, the way down. down. And, and and Dorian Linsky, uh, like a lot of these people, you know, they'll praise the protest movements of the sixties and talk about how, for example, like when 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 Black Lives Matter 
is happening. You know, like they'll say, yeah, in, in America, obviously, the situation with police is really bad, but it's not as bad over here. You know, and 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 this is uh, this is what it always comes down to. You know, as long as there's a personal distance. Yeah, their attitude is it's fine. All protest is fine unless it delays their Waitrose delivery, in which case, what <laughs> Exactly, happens. you know? And, like, I mean, this guy is, like, such a lib that he wrote an entire book about 1984 <laughs> called The Ministry of Truth. And uh, there was just uh, quite an interesting uh, review from the Christian Science Monitor uh, about it, uh, in which they say that, uh, unfortunately, despite some key insights in the wealth of history in its pages, the book is not uh, what Orwell's last and most famous novel deserves. The Ministry of Truth is a superficial, scattered account of the authors and books that provided a context for 1984 and events that helped make Orwell the artist who could write it and none of the depth that Orwell in his times or the novel deserve. <laughs> Pretty scathing stuff right there. Uh, but what was, I think, specifically kind of enlightening to me is the, is the closing paragraph of this review in which it says... Uh, Another disappointing aspect of Linsky's book is his refusal to discuss at any length wartime rationing and its effect on the British psyche. He devotes at most eight sentences to the subject, skirting any engagement with reality that must have profoundly influenced Orwell in his writing of 1984. The Fort Oceania is not just a world of pervasive lies and emotional in uh, and um, uh, intellectual repression. It's also a world of physical deprivation, of bad food and frayed clothes, where fresh fruit and real chocolate are almost imaginable uh, luxuries. It's impossible to believe that the hardships of life in the 1940s Britain weren't central to the creation of Orwell's masterpiece. And I don't know, like that to me, I think it's quite like illustrative of like how a lot of like liberals see, uh, you know, um, like not just 1984, but, but Orwell, but just history in general. You know, I think like there's just, just such a retrospective lens on everything, you know, and, um, the, the real material context for why things come up in the times that they do and why people think the way that they do and why people believe the, the way that they do, uh, the actual material conditions that give rise to them, there's like a complete lack of lack of recognition of that. And I think that like something like that is like quite, quite illustrative of that. I don't know. Uh, if you look at the way they these writers worked when they wrote about, say, uh, hip hop, for instance, or... Uh, sampling or any of this stuff back back in the 80s and the 90s they they don't engage with it on any kind of deep level it's enjoyable sounds you know the politics of it rarely got engaged with in a deep way by the people who've ended up being in the commentariat there were writers of that era who who engaged deeply and those writers don't get commissioned very much i've um someone uh sent me a brilliant John Harris review of when he saw M people. It's written down as the Apex Twin, but I don't think he's ever has he ever gone by the Apex Twin or has he just been Apex Twin? Yeah, because he keeps calling him the Apex. Twin. Apex, Apex Twin. Apex Twin. Apex Twin. Apex. Sorry, that's me saying it right. <laughs> Apex like, Twin. What, what, the yeah, the, the Apex the, Twin. The Apex Twin. It's like okay, no, it's, yeah, the, yeah. The, the V is is that the thing that no. he, was, he was called? Because he keeps calling him the, the V. And I'm like. The, like, I, the. I, I've never heard of I've never heard Aphex Twin referred to as the Aphex Twin. Yeah. <laughs> um, and no, Pai, me um, neither. So when he's talking about Aphex Twin, he says 
The yawn-inducing tedium of the Apex, the Apex Twins' performance <laughs> stemmed from the fact he's, he's Techno's equivalent to the Emperor's new clothes. And then um, there's a bit more of him complaining. And um, the whole thing has an air of up its own arse pomposity. It gives your correspondent a terrific headache. And if it becomes popular, it will throw in everything. Songs, tunes, stage presents that the, some of us still hold dear. Ignore it for music's sake. And then M people come on. And um, he's delighted by this. And he's like, catchiness, sparkle and Friday night romance. Pop music in short. It's dangerous times like these where it needs defending. Oh, God. Wow. There's some more about to work at the beginning as well, but I can't even go into that. <laughs> the absence of tape. My God. And like that, that's again, like, you know, you can tell like his, his taste in music is as good as his taste in politics is as good as his taste in his haircut. You know, like this is a guy, this is a guy, I, I like, I, I genuinely don't know on, on the back of like what, talent he has been given this platform that like you know because obviously we, we mentioned him in our episode on the guardian briefly but like especially like in the lead like during the brexit years the shit that he did like just going into uh leave voting towns and doing these vox pops like and hearing stories of like him literally seeking out the most fucking racist guy like there that, that he could find you know to like like get these get these views of like and paint this picture of 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 this like socially conservative you know industrial north and uh like post-industrial north or whatever and like just the other week like this poll comes out showing that like the social the social views of voters in the red wall seats are actually technically more progressive than on average with the rest of the country and it's like of course it fucking is like because this whole thing is a lie i mean it's like well this, it's like, like helen this, helen this kind of, going yeah, and exactly going and finding going owner. and finding fucking you know like a, a, some nurse who thinks that the area is getting too brown because there's now 97 percent white people there you know like it's it's the same shit and it's like you know, if you want to tell a particular story, then you can. And it comes down to like, you know, the, the, the choices that are being made at the, you know, highest editorial level. But like people like John Harris and like, yeah, I mean, the reason why like they, they were like, whatever, like the the autobiographers of, of Britpop, right? I mean, like uh, that's the era. Like, things things could only get better. And like they, they've, they've kind of like stayed there, haven't they? The thing with John Harris is right. So I, I I've referred to it previously, but there there is a it's a good book called In Their Own Right: Adventures in the Music Press, which is this oral history. Yeah. And John Harris only appears once <laughs> in it, and he is referenced by David Kavanagh, who um, was a really brilliant music journalist, a brilliant Irish music journalist, who sadly took his own life in 2018, which the press attributed to financial reasons, just that he, he didn't have work. But uh, as we know, like you can never really attribute something like that to one reason but that's something that they said but david kavanagh um it mentions john harris and it's in this section that i'll just read it to you so the general verdict on morning glory oasis yeah. second album from the journalist i talked to was fairly to very negative so the review came out no problem suddenly it went to number one and stayed there there was a pro oasis buzz at q with the inkling of an anti-blur buzz and the most important thing is that the readers went for it well ahead of the journalists and voted them for the q awards at that point q phone creation and the band's management and got the response oh okay we see you want liam and noel to come get an award for an album which you said was no good 
They were told, ah, one of our freelancers said it was no good. We love it. And then you had all these people who slagged it off saying it was great. I didn't get any work for three months. People like John Harris, who's from a very middle class home in Cheshire, was suddenly talking <laughs> like Terry Christian. A lot of people saw the bus leaving and wanted to get on it. I preferred walking. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's the mention that you get and the only other mention he gets on the on the next page they say uh, i went along to the emac leave emac leaving do this is when select was closed and bumped into john harris who had been the editor of select i asked who are all these people he said god knows <laughs> there you go. That's, that's, that's as much as john harris's career was worthy of um of being mentioned <laughs> yeah but it's interesting that because like Oasis became popular because there were a load of um, they had a w big working class fan base who wanted to listen to them. Right. Blur became popular because they were a critics darling largely um, once they found the formula they wanted to go with. And you know, like Oasis is very derivative, whatever. Right. In some circles, they are they are being reclaimed as the last great rock band. Which I have uh, very strong feelings about. <laughs> well, not strong feelings, but I I have feelings about. <laughs> I as a like young music fan at the time, like I was like what you know, like ten, eleven when they when they sort of blew up. They were just excited. They were exciting, and they seemed exciting, and they weren't bored. They just weren't boring, you know. Yeah. Obviously, if you know anything, you start to know things. You sort of go, well, very derivative. Yeah. Noel Gallagher's a massive twat yeah. and whatever. But the interesting point about it is the way these people jumped on the bandwagon. And music journalists now will tell you that, that yeah, they always knew Oasis would be massive. And that's the same thing they now do as political columnists. Anything they get wrong, they pretend that they actually got right. <laughs> that's like the new statesman for like the thing. last 18 months. Like, even when there's a poll which shows Labour... 18 points behind like nearly 20 points behind you know behind the fucking tories you've still got this fucking moron ian leslie saying but here's why it's good actually you know like and these people are paid like paid like you know stable fucking sad like steve, steve oh yeah steve, he steve said Bush. he said buy in like, now buy in now because like because like this is the good this is the best time to buy in because the stock is at the lowest and like stephen bush like people like like it's just unfucking believable you know like these uh genuinely like some of the most mediocre people i mean like this is this is the problem with like the british press in general like we've kind of gone over this like on multiple platforms before but like uh, you know, that it, that it kind of like really breeds this mediocrity and, uh, you know, because of many different reasons and because of a lot of like nepotism and a lot of uh, uh, like a deference, deference to authority. But like, but but at the same time, you know, I think like music journalism, I think may, maybe particularly illustrates that because like you were saying before, you know, like because of this kind of proximity to uh, superstardom and to fame and to a celebrity you know like it also gives people this uh additional sense of self-aggrandizement like and this is why you know like when, when you when you hear like people like julie birchall or Catelyn moran and people like them talking about themselves uh and like their contribution to pop culture and to the discourse and whatnot for example like the reason why their ego is so fucking inflated you know, is I think it because of a combination of these both of these things. Oh, I just I just discovered, by the way, that um after David Kavanagh's death, John Harris wrote a um <laughs> wrote a thing for the Guardian about how brilliant David Kavanagh was. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I wonder if he if, if he had realised the thing. 
remembered what Kavanaugh had said about him. But the, the thing I think is really important to say about this is, right, it's not music journalism as a whole. It is the fact that the people who were only in music journalism for proximity to fame and the ability to become famous themselves through their byline have become these people. Oh, sure. Like yeah. there are tons of people who wrote for these titles, who wrote really interesting stuff, who continued going down like esoteric wormholes about music or disappeared off to write other things or even became novelists or created their own things. Or someone like Neil Tennant, who was editor of Smash Hits and then became, you know, a pop star with the Pet Shop Boys. He didn't go off and like become a political columnist for the independent. You know, the most narrowly obsessed with their own importance people from the music press became these people is 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 my thesis for it and in doing so have pretty much destroyed british political discourse or mainstream political discourse in the same way that they sat nav the music press into the shitter by never realizing that the important thing was introducing readers to new and interesting bands not writing about their own pet theories on what they thought was good or pressing themselves right up against bands um you know and always getting themselves in the picture like piers morgan used to do when he edited bizarre for the sun <laughs> yeah anyway that's my theory and i'm sticking with it that's also like a, a good sort of segue to talk about you know someone who i think who i promise we will go we will we'll go easy on her, but I think we have to kind of like discuss her a little bit because it's just been like there's there's just been like so much uh on you know on on the timeline of of Eve Barlow, Scottish journalist Eve Barlow mm. recently. The thing is, like like you were saying, I genuinely do like someone who's like saying stuff like she's been saying, like 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 my friend saw a sign saying free parking and she thought it said free Palestine. Like the Jews are so tired, and like I mean, like dude, like I mean, like in how can anyone think that that's a good look? You know, by you know, by 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 any measure, you know. Like she deleted that tweet, but like I mean, the thing is, like when when someone's like posting stuff like that, you know, it's like clearly, you know, it's like really um, they're, they're beyond a certain certain point, you know. Like and and like there's there's like obviously a lot of stuff going on psychologically at that point, you know, and like there's obviously been like some process, uh, process of radicalization there as well. That's the way I feel about it. Look, I've known her since the early days of her being a music journalist. She was when she was a work experience and then uh, very junior on cue. And, and I would have in the past said that we were good friends and, and that's not the case now. I don't, you know, we, we, we don't speak, not that we're not speaking in the sense of like, there's been no great schism. It's just that, I see it. I look and I just see a person who is who does seem to have been severely radicalized. And I'm not saying that there's no um, that I can't, you know, talk to people I don't agree with politically or whatever. Sure. But I look at it and I just it's just it's terrifying to me because it feels like radicalization. It feels like a a total move to a position of such extreme that I, I i can't hey man like i've 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 seen that among my friends as well like i've seen that among people that i went to university with and people that i've worked with as well especially in the last few years and like you know like people that you've you know shared a lot of good times with and then like suddenly like you see over time especially like in these increasingly like politically fraught times uh you know like their their views becoming increasingly I mean, I would say irrational, 
and um and and frankly quite scary um and and like i mean i wrote that thing about like about rafael bear's like heart attack article you know which he which he wrote back in january and and i wrote that thing about it about how like you know like i mean i don't doubt like in terms of what he's saying in terms of like the the amount of stress that like working in the guardian at the time you know would have put him under you know i mean journalism can be a very stressful job as it is as a jewish man you know working at the guardian which is like constantly every single day pumping out multiple articles about how jeremy corbyn represents basically an existential threat to 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 jews in britain like like that shit is going to do a number on people's sense of reality, you know? And like... Yeah, the psychic damage is heavy. And When people post stuff like this, like, I think that, like... I, I was listening to this interview that she was doing with this guy called Ashley Rinsberg, and it's like... I think he does a podcast and a blog called The Burning Castle. And, I mean, like, this guy is a journalist and writer and seems like a pretty strange, very massively pro-Israel guy. Um, and this is a, 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 a thing that she did either right at the end of last year or, or the start of this year. So like not, not very long ago, but within the last six months. And yeah, I don't know, like in it, you know, when you see like the, the kind of things that she's saying about like seeing her words is the non-Jewish world as a direct threat. You know, and like, once again, this is not just like, obviously anti-Semitism exists and it's it's a real fucking problem. And it's a real, it's a genuine real threat, which is actually on the rise right now. And, and we know that, you know, but like. Even in the past few weeks, there have been plenty of, of um you know, of vi- videos and things there to show that. No one is denying or minimizing any of that in the slightest. But the thing is, like, when you're, when you're constantly in that mindset that like, that there is this constant like existential threat. Like, of course, you know, it's going to drive you fucking crazy. Like, and it's going to have, like, adverse, you know, consequences. And, like, and I think, like, it's a combination of of, of that and, like, working within this industry, specifically within music journalism, which kind of, like, lends you with the sense of, like, self-importance. And, like, especially as, like, these, like... I think it can give you main character syndrome. <laughs> yeah, this is exactly I really it. Do. It's, like, it's, 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 like, protagonist syndrome. You know, like, everything, you know, like, there's this, like, huge, like, it fosters this, like, the, this solipsistic worldview, you know, like, where, like, the entire fucking universe revolves around you. Where this all ties back to music journalism, though, is, you know, what I was calling main character syndrome, what you'd call protagonist syndrome. It is this closeness to this world of, of celebrity the net the nature of quite a lot of music journalism to be glib and to seek to say this is good and this is bad coming back to what nikita was saying when she's quoting the john harris aphex twin and m people review it's like <laughs> the threat of anything new the threat of anything unusual is 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 so extreme and this notion of thinking yourself cool but actually being very conservative in your thinking. Catelyn Moran is a very conservative writer yeah. as well. When you actually read, she thinks herself a radical, but she's actually very conservative. conservative. The thing that they're so deeply afraid of is that they can't admit to themselves that there was a time when they were cool, whatever the hell cool even means anymore, and they're not anymore. 
And the fear of not being cool is a big part of what makes them so distrustful of anything put forward by people younger than them. I mean, when I went on Sinan's show for the first time, there's a lot of people saying, well, why have you got this guy on? He used to be more centrist. He, uh, you know, wrote for the Telegraph a long time ago and all this kind of stuff. And and, and the, the, the truth is, yeah, that's true. That was the case with me. But what the difference between me and some of these people is I've been listening to more people who are younger than me. I've been listening to more people who are from different backgrounds to mine. I've been looking at the way my industry works. And instead of saying I'm happy with this, I've been increasingly saying my experience of this has been bad and I'm a white lower middle class guy imagine how bad it is and listening to how bad it's been for people who don't have the privilege that i have and you go oh my god he's you know that's pushed me further and further left you know and and i find what's really interesting sometimes is you have people on the left who sort of don't allow you to do that yeah. <laughs> like oh you you weren't pure to start with fuck yourself you know and it's like okay yeah no enough. fuck that we, like yeah there's no room to grow the music journalists who we're talking about what they've done is sort of said I was cool once. I'm still cool now. I won't have these younger people tell me I'm not, you know, and it's very interesting. They're so fearful of all this stuff. And it's and in the trans stuff is, is similar to that. It's like if they were my age or your age now, they would have a completely different view. But because it feels new to yeah. them, it has to be put in with all this kind of like everything is bad now. But these were people who were who were very strongly against Section 28 and stuff like that back in the past. But they can't make the connection and say, you know, yeah, that was wrong. And this is wrong, too. But they're stuck in their nostalgia, you see. So new facts conflict with the nostalgia. I did a tweet like a few days ago just saying just like in response to like something that Eve Barlow had, had, had done. Uh, and I was just saying, just, like literally just said, what the fuck is with music journalists? And just kind of like made a, a, a you know a suggestion that yeah like maybe they were like the last generation to get really cushy jobs on mass uh in journalism before uh you know before the internet changed everything uh to which a friend of the show trevor bastard uh replied can think of one who wasn't even well paid and didn't get on the property ladder in fact last i heard they were living on benefits but still went absolutely berserk with a heavy case of anti-corbanism i think it's more to do with not being able to shag 18 year old girls anymore <laughs> yeah i'd say there's something in that i'd say there's something in that do we know who this journalist is uh i don't i don't know who it is i mean like they they, they seem to i mean i could start naming people i think it is i think we should start labeling <laughs> you know what i know exactly who it is i know exactly who it is but you can't put it in the show we, you can tell us after we you 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 can tell us after we've we finished recording. But yeah, no, it's like, too late now. Yeah. yeah, a lot of these guys have like the vibes of the men who would message me and okay, Cupid when I was eighteen. <laughs> oh, I mean, like John Harris. <laughs> <laughs> as uh, on the show notes, as Nikita wrote, John Harris in brackets, Yada. <laughs> He's very much Yada. Yeah. <laughs> Just, I, I think, like, any person who thinks that Britpop was, like, the pinnacle of British music is just a severely limited person. It's just Yadar. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, Yadar is quite a, a, a limited sort of content. Um, not, what's the word? Concept. <laughs> uh, but you know this problem about, like, them thinking that it, any particular era was the best era of music? It's two issues with that. Like, 
any era of music you go back to, right? Any time loads of loads of cool stuff was in the chart you can always find shit music but the other thing and it goes back to what i said near the start of this uh, about the way they still identify themselves amongst themselves as enemy people or maker people is that they also are obsessed with what era of the magazine they worked on and how their era of the enemy was better or worse than previous or subsequent eras so the, the whole thing here is i think what we're talking about is the derangement that nostalgia can cause, right? I am like increasingly unnostalgic for the past, right? <laughs> like I basically think this point now is probably the best I'm at, and like the past was quite shit. I, I hope that things can get better, but these people think the '90s is never going to get better than the '90s. We're all taking a lot of cocaine. We were all like hanging out in the Groucho and everyone thought we were cool and they still do now. And we'll be cool forever. That's the problem. Nostalgia is the real drug. That's the problem here. You know, cocaine is just the facilitator for this nostalgia. Speaking to, yeah, that, that thing about like, you know, journalists getting that heavy dose of anti-Corbynism, someone I, I have been aware of for like over a decade now, especially from like back in the time when I was in the dubstep scene and like I was on dubstep forum a lot. Like, cause like a lot of the producers and like the sort of leading members of the scene were also contributing on there as well. And, and so was Joe Muggs. And, and like, I read a couple of his things and, I, and, and like I mentioned in a previous episode of this podcast about rave music, uh, you know, his Ted talk that he did, um, which is actually really good, uh, you know, about rave culture. Um, you know, like, this is a guy who's also just, like, been on this meltdown, like, regarding Corbyn for the past, like, six years. Like, that. Mm. it's just a bit bizarre. Like, I can imagine, you know, like, in person, he can be, he, I'm, he must be quite a nice person. He's a person that I encountered a few times good number of years ago and on and off, you know, actually, yeah, and I like quite a lot of his yeah. writing, like, in terms of, his stuff, like um, bass mid tops, yeah. the, the oral history of sound yeah. system culture that he yeah. just put out, it's really yeah. good. He knows his yeah, stuff exactly. about yeah. and everything, but it's an age thing, isn't it? He's gone down the same route, and they were all kind of radicalizing each other. This is mentioning someone who's far, far, far worse than Joe Muggs has been, or I think will ever be. But you've not done this, but sometimes people do, is they think, oh, people in the rave scene or dub scene and stuff that are gonna be sound, right? Well, Paul Staines. <laughs> Guido Fawkes. Paul Staines. Was in the rave scene. Was, 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 was heavily into Acid House. He threw, he threw free parties. into Acid House. <laughs> he did. So on that basis, like... Imagine they're raving with Paul Staines. <laughs> Fucking hell, man. Oh, my God. You can find on YouTube footage of Paul Staines at Acid House parties. So yeah, you know, exactly, exactly. The ecstasy <laughs> did not work. Yeah, clearly. Was it a bad batch? We don't know. <laughs> the baddest batch. It's just on a really, really long come down. It was just no serotonin there. The, this entire like timeline that we've been living for the last five years is Guido, like Paul Staines' personal come down from the nineties. <laughs> like we've just all been living it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, on that note, I think we can probably start wrapping up as well. It's been great. It's been a lot of fun. Um, a lot of pretty grim stuff. We did quite a lot of research on Tony Parsons, but didn't end up talking yeah. about him because I found yeah. him finding him quite charming. Like the whole thing about him. Oh, I don't really want to dunk on it. Is, 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 isn't he a massive Tory? Yeah. 
Please take a charming one. Yeah, and he's a sun colonist. There's plenty of stuff, but like, yeah. The other thing that Parsons benefits from is, like, they it's sort of like um one of those wars between two bad countries, but one is much worse than the other. And you're like, okay, he was married to Julie Birchall, and like, he at least bothered to, you know, like stick around and look after his son so ergo is mine is marginally better than julie birchall you know so oh but julie birchall talking about their son is you know that tweet where the guy's like what if the child just has bad vibes that's julie birchall <laughs> about her son oh my god we need, to talk, so we need to talk about kevin oh my god but the kid seems fine like the son seems fine like, i don't think there's anything wrong with no, the son no 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 yeah. this is just like julie birchall just tilda swinton nice from guy. that movie just having like a personal like psychotic break <laughs> just like imagining all of that <laughs> yeah, oh. don't, don't kevin uh bobby kennedy yeah that's his name by the way exactly <laughs> Effectively, what we've learned today is that, that of all the drugs, nostalgia is the worst. Is. Le- legalize all the others and ban nostalgia. And we have and that batch fine. that Paul Staines has been on of the ecstasy. Maybe let's not do more of that. Paul Staines is bad batch of ecstasy. <laughs> Stay away from the it, cause lads. of everything. If you see a Guy Fawkes mask on your pill, just just don't take it. It's <laughs> <laughs> just like. <laughs> Thank you for coming on the talk show for two hours. Thank you for having me. Yeah, genuinely, I don't think I don't think we could have had a better guest on for this than, than you. Like it's been it's been great because uh, yeah, uh, like I said, lots of uh, lots of good detours into like the general sort of overall state of the British press and 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 why it's as fucked as it is. Um, like I said, massive thanks, uh, Mick. Did you want to plug anything? Your your newsletter and anything else before we go? Yeah, I write a daily media criticism newsletter, which is uh, uh, some people say good. Is, is good because it avoids them it having to read the the most pure, uncut, horrific stuff. Because I I, uh, I snort it myself, and then I write about the experience for you. Um, yeah, it's just Broken Bottle Boy straight from the search pipe. Yeah, that's why I'm as deranged <laughs> as I am. But yeah, brokenbottleboy.substack.com, or, if, or or easy enough, just go to at Broken Bottle Boy on Twitter and. You can find the link in my profile. And uh, yeah, thank you for having me, guys. I, I'm a big fan of the show. So uh, it was you. good to be on. Yeah, thanks so much, honestly. Uh, yeah, like I said, it's been a lot of fun. Also pretty grim, but also pretty cathartic, as <laughs> always. Uh, I'm Arjan at Arjanistan on Twitter. Oh, I'm Nikita. I'm at Jeremy Horbin. And we're on Twitter at LeftoverPod or at, at LeftoverPod. <laughs> and uh, we're also on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash leftoverpods. And we still have that uh, the suggestion. We still thingy. have the suggestion box. And yeah. uh, our plan is to have uh, that first uh, bit of content ready by the middle of June. So we are going to keep it up for a few more days. So please do give us suggestions in there for what kind of things you want to see. Any sort of suggestions, even if we don't do it for this episode. Um, you know, if you have ideas for, for you know, for, for stuff that you'd like to see from us as well, please do feel free to send us a, uh, a message. We'd love to hear from you. And um, yeah, and, and a massive thanks to all our, all our supporters. If you're able to help, uh, please do sign up as well, as always. And sign up to, to Mix Substack. Massive shout out to Sarah for production, to Cardio 
for the music to all of you for listening and we'll catch you guys next time cheers Thank you.